This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. As we so easily get bogged down in the troubles and trials and temptations of this life. And it's so easy to be seduced into thinking this is how it's always going to be forever and ever, world without end. But history is going somewhere, and it's going somewhere because it is guided by the sovereign hand of God. And he has a future for his children. We still haven't found what we're looking for. And despite all the benefits that we receive as soon as we believe in Jesus, most of what we hope for is still to come. And we need to continually encourage one another about the coming day of the Lord. For our salvation is drawing near, and it is nearer now than when we first believed. And we need to lift up our eyes and to lift up our hearts to the coming kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here we are in this marvelous book of Revelation, which may be for you a book of terror and darkness and confusion. And it really is a shame that so many Christians ignore this book of the Bible and others have an unhealthy fascination with it. Because at the very beginning of the book, John says in verse 3 of chapter 1, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. I just got a blessing reading these words to you, and I'm always up for a free blessing. And blessed are those who hear. You were blessed by hearing these words if you're allowing them to soak into your hearts. Blessed are those who hear and to keep what is written in it for the time is near. We are part of a story, a story that God is writing. And he's bringing us to a glorious destination, secure for us in Christ. And this book of Revelation truly is a revelation, an apocalypse. It is a, an opening of the curtain so that we can see what is really happening in this universe. Because we are very liable to be deceived. And to assume that what we can see with our eye in this world around us, the powers and the troubles of this world are all that there are to human existence. And John, St. John the Divine, is granted this incredible vision. And he is commanded by the risen and exalted Lord Jesus himself to write these things down. They are not meant for his personal interest or his personal consolation, they are meant to encourage the church of God. And the people that John is writing to are a tiny and powerless minority, small churches in a hostile world. And here are these few people, these Jews and Gentiles who have come to faith in Jesus, surrounded by pagan neighbors and idolaters, threatened by the power of Rome itself. And when you go about declaring Jesus is risen and Jesus is Lord, that is a threat to the empire, 
to the Roman Empire and empires of all sorts in this world. I don't know if you're tracking what's going on in China, but they are experiencing persecution more severe than they have experienced in decades. And the government has basically declared that Christianity is a malign and hostile force that is undermining everything good and beautiful in China. That's not true. There is nothing better for China than Christian faith. But they are right in that Christianity is a grave threat to communism and totalitarianism and dictators of all sorts because we proclaim Jesus is Lord and our ultimate allegiance is not to the state, not to any human power, but to the risen Son of God. And so perhaps this book is best understood not by someone sitting in comfort in Texas or Saskatchewan or Manchester, but by the persecuted people of God all over the world where the church is threatened and it seems like the powers of evil are prevailing. Because Rome always seems irresistible. Rome always wins in the end. Rome always crushes its enemies. And here is this book and this person coming with this prophecy given by God saying, no, there are unseen realities. There are great cosmic things afoot. And what seems real and powerful is doomed for defeat. And what seems weak and small is going to inherit the earth. And here in the second last chapter of this book, Christ has returned and everything wrong is being made right again. There are four wonderful things we can highlight in Revelation chapter 21. And the first one is this, that God is going to renew all of creation. There is going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And last week we talked about the resurrection of the body from 1 Corinthians 15. And I'll remind you that our salvation, if it's just the salvation of your soul, is only half a salvation. It's our soul's and bodies that are redeemed and ransomed by Jesus. But even that is far too small because the scope of salvation is not just you and yourself. It's not even this church or not even all of humanity. It is the entire creation. Everything that God has made has been touched and defiled and damaged by sin, and he is going to rescue everything. It's all part of this humongous plan that God has so that Christ Jesus will be all in all. And salvation includes the new heaven and the new earth. And new means salvaged, rescued, and renewed. It does not mean that God is going to destroy this earth completely and start over afresh. This earth will be burned with fire. It will be purified and emerge, regenerated by the power of God. Remember in Romans 8, it talks about all creation groaning. The creation is groaning in travail until the liberty of the sons of God is revealed, and then creation will experience its true freedom. Creation is not groaning to be destroyed. It's groaning for the saving, recreating power of God to be worked on it. 
And so if that's the scope of God's salvation, that needs to be the scope of our hearts as well. And never let it be said that the Christian gospel is cramped and narrow. We care about everything God created because he cares about it all so deeply. And God's plan is not to abandon it. God will not abandon the work of his hands. He's never going to be let it said that the evil one accomplished any sort of victory. God is going to be all in all and his victory will be total. There's a famous picture from the end of the war in Vietnam, I think from 1974. And there's, it was the last American helicopter out of Saigon. And it's on the roof and everyone's climbing up the staircase to be on this last helicopter before the Viet Cong takes over the city. That is not a picture of God's final victory. He's not going to helicopter out of us out of this planet as we see it exploding in flames in the rearview mirror. God came to redeem this planet. And it's groaning so that it can be transformed. And what that transformation will look like, we can only imagine. I guess it's kind of like our own transformation. We, when we are physically resurrected into a body that is somehow the same but marvelously different. And if dogs are in heaven, they're going to be very confused because they'll recognize us, but yet will be very, very different from how we are now. And I think the same will be true of this creation. It will be this earth, we will recognize it, but it will no longer be subject to the death and decay and disorder and entropy that it experiences now, but it is going to be flourishing and full of life and beauty and joy. That is what God is up to. New heavens and a new earth And no more sea. No more sea. Now that might be a little confusing to you because we don't really understand how people in the ancient world viewed the sea. The sea was thought of as a force of danger and chaos. Surging and wild and a threat to human life. And in fact, in the book of Revelation, all these beasts and monsters... They rise out of the sea. And therefore, when there's no more sea, it means there's going to be no more lurking evil, no more threat to what God's going to do, no more new and even more powerful monster that is going to emerge to attack the heavenly city. It's all going to be done with. And just like Miriam and the people of Israel danced when God dried up the sea as part of salvation, we're going to be dancing as well that not only evil will be destroyed, but the very possibility of evil will be gone forever. How good will that be? And so God has a plan to renew all of creation. And secondly, God is going to bring the new Jerusalem. He's going to bring the new Jerusalem. This city is going to descend out of heaven onto this earth. And it is going to be, it's going to be a wonderful city. Now, there's all this symbolic language in Revelation, and it's difficult for us to tease apart what is meant literally and what is poetic, but it's going to be awesome. I can promise you that because it's something that God himself is building. Human beings are terrible city planners. 
As we experience in this city and in every city on this earth, there are always things wrong with our cities. And cities on this earth are places where we see the best of human beings, but also the worst. And in God's city, there are not going to be miles and miles of slums, no more open sewers, no more congested traffic, no factories belching forth pollution. It's going to be this beautiful garden city with a river from the throne of God flowing through the streets and the tree of life somehow growing on both sides of this river with 12 kinds of fruit and its leaves for the healing of the nations. It will be a city of light and life and joy. That's the city that God is making for us. A garden city, but it will be a city. We're not going back to the Garden of Eden. We're not going back to the simplicity of Eden. We're going forward to a city. And a city is a place where this city, at least, is going to be a place of unhindered human flourishing. Imagine redeemed human beings set free at last to achieve everything God created us to do. The mission that God gave Adam and his helper Eve in the garden was not only to tend the garden, but to extend it, to push the garden's boundaries outward into the wild world, to fill the earth, to multiply and be fruitful, and to create civilization. And they botched the job terribly. And now Jesus has come as the second Adam with his bride, the church, and with him, we are going to achieve the mission that God has always had for the human race. Our calling is not to sit under a pleasant tree and eat fruit. Our calling is to do work for God, work without weariness and work without a curse. And I don't know about you, but some of the happiest times in my life have been when I have been totally absorbed in a good piece of work. You know that feeling? You're just lost in building or doing or making something without distractions and you get this deep focus and ah, it is so pleasurable because that's what God made us to do. And in this world, I'm sorry to say, we experience that all too rarely. And all work, even the dreamiest of dream jobs is filled with frustration and difficulty and ultimately meaninglessness in this world. But what will it be like to do fruitful, meaningful, permanent, glorious work under the presence of God? That is what he has made us to do. You know, in this life, we have dreams and plans and things we feel like God has put in our hearts. And then the circumstances of life intervene. And you have children or there is an aging parent you need to take care of or you can't afford to go to university, and somehow you find yourself in some dull, meaningless piece of work that you never intended to do and that you have no delight in. But that is not the end of your story because God has much better work for you to do. And there's some glorious work that God has prepared for you ahead of time that you are going to get to do in the new heavens and the new earth. It's not a garden, it's a city because God loves cities. Tim Keller says that God loves the city more than the country.
because God loves humans more than plants. God loves cities because God loves people. And the more people there are in a place, the more God loves it. He loves cities. And his plan is to create a great and an awesome city. And this is not a city, you notice, that is the product of human ingenuity or engineering. This is a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. It's not like the Tower of Babel in the book of Genesis that human beings tried to build up to heaven. This is not a city that goes up to heaven. It's a city that comes down from heaven, that God has prepared for his people as a sheer gift. And really, the Bible, and especially the book of Revelation, is a tale of two cities. There's the city of God, but then there's this foul, demonic parody of God's city called Babel or Babylon. And the story of the Bible is the struggle between these two cities. Which one is going to have the future of humanity? And in Revelation, the city of Babylon, this sprawling city, is a city built on violence and exploitation. It's a city filled with all kinds of sexual perversion. It's the great prostitute. And that's a description of Rome and every kind of godless human civilization. Did you know that the Roman Empire, which we remember as so awesome and so glorious, had 60 million slaves? And the vast majority of the Roman population, 90% or thereabouts, were living at or just on the edge of the poverty line. And there was a tiny fraction of people who were really enjoying life. It was great for them, but it sucked for everyone else. And that is what the Roman Empire was built upon. And that's what all civilizations, beautiful as they are, they have this seamy underbelly. There is evil and oppression and exploitation at work. And this is not what the city of God is like. It's a city of love and liberty and joy. And it's what God is bringing. And this city comes down from heaven. It's being built in heaven, but heaven is only the staging ground because it's going to be winched down onto this earth, lower down from heaven to this earth. And I'm very fond of this planet, and you should be too, because this is where God has planned our forever home. Heaven is not our home. You were not meant to live in heaven. You were meant to live on this earth. And God is bringing the new Jerusalem down to this earth. And do you know what? God loves this planet a lot. He loves the earth. Not just the people on it, but this planet itself is the object of the love of God. There was a pastor in New York about 120 years ago with the wonderful name of Maltby D. Babcock. And he lived in upstate New York near the Niagara Escarpment. And he would go for a walk every morning and he would say to his wife as he left, I'm just going for a walk in my father's world. And when he died, she found in his papers the poem that became the hymn, This is My Father's World, one of the great hymns of the Christian faith. And there is a line in that poem that does not often make it into the hymn books, but it goes like this. For dear to God is the earth Christ trod, no place but his holy ground. Dear to God is the earth Christ trod. The very Son of God walked on this earth. 
He walked on this earth. This is a visited planet. And the presence of Jesus makes this whole planet holy. And when this new Jerusalem comes, it's going to be the dwelling place of God. And that is going to make everything holy. And this city is beautiful. It staggers the descriptive powers of John. But he describes the city as a bride being adorned for her husband. Stunning in beauty, encrusted with jewels, shining with the love of God, and bursting with all the potential of redeemed humanity. That is the city that is going to be lowered down from heaven onto this earth. And the best part of this city is that it's going to be the dwelling place of God. God himself is going to move into this city. And here in John's vision, he hears this loud voice, this huge shout coming from the throne saying, this is the end point of history. God is going to dwell with us. God is going to live on this planet. Not just to pop in for a visit once in a while, but to actually live on this planet, to move here. God is going to move out of heaven. Isn't that an astounding thought? He's going to leave heaven and come here. And the angels, I suppose, will be up there taking care of things. It'll be some kind of museum that we'll maybe get to visit. But God is going to move in with us. He must really, really love us. Because there are plenty of you I would enjoy visiting for an hour or so, but to, to move in with someone permanently, that is a huge commitment of love. And that is what God is planning to do, to make his home with us permanently, forever and ever. And if you read on in Revelation, you find this city has some very strange dimensions. It's 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles long, and 1,400 miles tall. That's a 600,000-story building. And there will have to be some incredible advances in elevator technology for this to work. So I don't know if this is symbolic or how real this is going to be, but it is very interesting that there are only two gold-covered cubes in the Bible. One of them is the New Jerusalem. The other one is the Holy of Holies in the temple, which had the same length and width and height. A cube. And so, what John is seeing is this city itself is going to be the holy of holies. And it needs no temple because God himself is going to be living in this city. The presence of God will be full and complete. And the Shekinah glory of God, the overwhelming brilliance of God's holy presence is going to completely fill the city. It will be a city without shadows. Nowhere you can be in this city where you are away from the loving presence of God. And this is what the people of God, the saints of God, have longed for down through the ages. The beatific vision to see the face of God. The most ambitious desire of the human soul and the thing that we ultimately were made for, to look into the face of God. And heaven will be filled, the new Jerusalem will be filled with 
wonderful and glorious things, but the very pinnacle and the very height will be face to face with God himself. And here and now we experience these tastes. We have these brief glimpses of the face of God. And there are times when our own hearts are filled to the point of breaking with the love of God. But even at our best, we are still seeing through a glass darkly. But a day is coming when we are going to see face to face and the glory of God is going to shine in its full force upon us. And man, we will need resurrected bodies. We will need powerfully transformed bodies. We will need much stronger eyes and much stronger minds and much bigger hearts to take in the full presence of God. But that is what he has for us. And not only will God dwell with us, he says that I will be their God and they will be my people. Not just the presence of God, but the possession of God. We will be God's treasured possession, purchased with the precious blood of Christ. And God will be our God. We will be tied and intertwined with God, with ropes that cannot be snapped, fused together with him by the most solemn oaths of covenant loyalty. We will be God's and God's will be ours. And nothing in God will be reserved or held back from us, but we will have full enjoyment of all that God is for us. And then the fourth thing is this, that God is going to end the curse. We live in a cursed world. And even on a very fine day like today, there is darkness and evil in this world And when God is present, he is going to deal with all of that forever. Not just with sin, but all the scars and stains of sin in this world. God promises that he is going to wipe every tear from our eyes. What a beautiful promise that is. That God is going to wipe every tear from our eyes. Imagine personal consolation by your heavenly father. He's not saying, stop crying, everything's fine now. He's actually going to personally wipe away every tear from your eyes. And he's not going to delegate that task. He's not going to hand it over to some angel and farm it out to a whole system. God is going to personally meet with every person and fully deal with all the pain and suffering of this life. And, wow, and, um, yes, thank you. Um, there is nothing that, that um, we can do in this world to wipe away, truly wipe away tears from our own faces or those from other people. And there are so many pains and so much suffering in this world that can only be dealt with when we are face to face with the consoling hand of God. God himself will deal with all that stuff. And I think it's beautiful that the fact that God is wiping away tears means that our pain will be acknowledged. It will be acknowledged by God. Yes, you suffered. You went through some terrible things and your tears were real. And now let me wipe them all away. 
And the tears will be gone because death is going to be no more or suffering or crying. All that stuff is going to be gone forever. All those things that are unavoidable in this world, we're all going to experience painful things in this life. But then God is going to do away with all that stuff and make all things new. Here are some profound words by Fyodor Dostoevsky. I think from the brothers Karamazov. He said, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for. That in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood that they've shed, something that will make it not only possible to forgive but to justify all that has happened. It's hard to imagine what could justify all that has happened in this world. And it would burst the limits of human description to put into words what God has planned for us. And only by faith can we trust that somehow in the immense imagination and goodness of God, something is happening that will make us forget everything we've suffered in this world. And we have suffered a lot. The people of God have suffered greatly. And if something is going to make us forget that pain, it must be incredible indeed. And now, we have an invitation from God. He promises this is done. It is done, God says. We don't see it yet, but that city exists. He's already prepared the city, and the future is guaranteed and unwritten by this, underwritten by the sovereignty of God. It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. All things originated from me, God says, and all things are going to terminate on me. It is done. Therefore, I have an invitation, God says. That whoever wants to can drink from the spring of the water of life freely, without price. There's no cost. There's this free offer that God holds out of eternal life with him in the new Jerusalem. Just simply offered. Whoever wishes can step forward and help themselves. There's no condition put on this statement except that you're thirsty. I feel a little thirsty myself right now, but just mildly thirsty. But extreme thirst is one of the most painful things that human beings can experience. An all-absorbing, deep need to have water in our bodies, because without water, there's no possibility of life. And so God is talking about a thirst for God himself, an intense need for God, a passionate desire to experience God. And anyone who has this awakening in their hearts is welcome to come to God and drink and drink and drink. It's just held out as a free gift. All of this is the gift of God. And in this life, we get to taste some of this water of life as we experience being born again by the power of Jesus and being filled with the Holy Spirit. 
but the full enjoyment of the water of life is only going to come when we plunge our heads into that river of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God. And then we can drink and then we can be fully satisfied. And God eagerly invites you to drink. You know, there are some things that are free, but you're not invited to partake. I was at the French Institute a couple days ago at the library there getting some books for our children. And in the little children's room, they had a little wicker basket and it had some stickers in there. And I saw a cat sticker and I thought, Solange loves cats. I should take this sticker for her. And there was no sign. They seemed to be free, but I, I wasn't so sure they were free that I didn't. I, I slipped it into my pocket as I walked past the librarian. Let's just say that. Because there was not an open invitation and welcome to partake. But the salvation that God offers is not like that. We don't have to furtively take wondering whether or not we're going to get stopped at the library desk and told to return it. No beepers are going to go off. You're not going to get in trouble. God, in fact, eagerly and passionately invites you to drink. Not because God is thirsty, but because you are thirsty. Whether or not you realize it, your body and soul need God more than you need water and air and anything else. We need God and he freely offers himself to anyone who takes. And this is a free gift, but it is not easy to lay hold of. Free, but not easy, because the city is only for those who conquer, only for those who overcome. And so faith in Jesus does not mean passivity, just like an overwhelming thirst does not mean passivity. We have to fight to enter into the city because we are opposed at every side. There are forces that want to lure us off the road and destroy us. The world and the flesh and the devil are all conspiring against us enjoying our share in this city. And we have things in our own heart, if we're honest, things that would lead us away from the living God and lure us into destruction. And so we must thirst enough to conquer. Only the thirsty will conquer. Only those who have an abiding, consuming, passionate thirst for being with God in his city will make it there. Because there are many alternate ways of quenching your thirst. Things which taste delicious at first sip, but will turn to poison in your stomach. But there are many, many things being offered that will quench your thirst and make you forget about the desire for God with which you began. And the Christian life is a fight to stay thirsty, isn't it? A fight to be passionate for God, a fight to stoke our faith and our hope and our love for God and his future. Now, if it were left up to us to endure and to conquer and to overcome, this would be a very depressing message indeed because for all we know we're still a long ways from the celestial city and how on earth are we going to stay on the path when so many have fallen from it and we need to remind ourselves of romans chapter 8 where we're told not just that we're conquerors but more than conquerors 
through him who loved us. Not through ourself and our spiritual power and our zeal and our fire for God, but through Jesus Christ. Because nothing, nothing, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God that are in Christ Jesus. And so if you want to conquer, if you want to endure, you must keep your heart warm with the love of Christ. Now our passage ends with a solemn warning. And it is always tempting as a preacher to skip these texts and to cut short before the threatening vengeance of God against sin. But for God's world of truth and goodness and beauty to come to pass, there must be a separation between good and evil. Evil must be named and dealt with once and for all. The justice of God must run its course because evil cannot survive with impunity in God's world. God is the omega and he's going to be the omega for everybody. He's the omega point for believers, but God is also going to be the omega point for the evil. He is going to be the end of their story. Not an end they choose, but an end that God inflicts upon them. And time would fail us to go through all these evils that these eight evils that John lists, but they cover the whole range of human wickedness. And however we find ourselves tempted, if our lives are defined by any of these things, we are endorsing the values of the beast and of Babylon. And the New Testament could not be more clear that how we live our lives now make every difference in where we spend eternity. And people whose lives are controlled and devoted to evil of any kind have no share in God's city, but only a terrible future of judgment awaits them. The gospel contains warnings as well as promises. And if you are in danger of being seduced, and all of us are, we need to take these warnings to heart because they are warnings of a father who does not want us to be destroyed. He does not want us to drink the poison of this world. And we need the grace of God to fight against all that would seduce and destroy us and to set our hearts firmly on the hope that Christ has purchased for us. So shall we pray and ask God for that grace? Great and awesome God, Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end, you are the sum of all of our hopes. And the only future worth hoping in is the one that you have prepared for us. We thank you, God, that salvation means not only deliverance from death, but entrance into life and life abundant. Lord, we thirst for you. And yet... We do not thirst. We pray that your Holy Spirit would make us thirstier and thirstier. We pray that your Holy Spirit would refresh us with water that flows from your throne. God, we pray together that none of us here would miss the way. That every person here would be presented blameless at the last before Christ. 
safe and secure forever in your holy city. Lord, help us to set our hope more firmly on your future. Keep us from resting in anything in this world here, which is all doomed to destruction, but to trust in the city that you are building and bringing for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.